We saw in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus began that sermon that he said that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And the reason why we have spent our time then looking at the Ten Commandments is to observe that very reality, to see how the Ten Commandments were pointing forward to something greater in Christ, how they'd be fulfilled in Christ, really the beauty of what was behind those laws. And tonight we're going to finish our series on that by looking at the final five commandments that was found in Exodus chapter 20, because these five commandments are very succinct, and they are considered the passages of how you love your neighbor as it describes these these final commands and so basically we love our neighbors by not sinning against them and so we'll see in these five commandments then the picture that God gave for Israel and how they apply then under the law of Christ verse 13 of Exodus chapter 20 is the sixth commandment where it prohibits murder you may have grown up on the King James or the American standard which said thou shalt not kill that's a little bit misleading because there are eight Hebrew words for the word kill and yet none of them are this word Uh, it is not thou shalt not kill but it was a description of murder the Hebrew word was used either in terms of intentional or unintentional death of somebody but so it wasn't just a reference to all killing in general but rather it was a reference to the taking of a life of another human being, including any unauthorized killing. What God is trying to do is immediately teach to Israel as here they are at the mountain and God is declaring these commandments is to teach them the sanctity of human life. Uh, that human life is of great value and is not to be uh, discarded or considered irrelevant. And in this law of do not murder, it would include then all kinds of various ways that we take lives that are sometimes considered appropriate today. It would exclude abortion. It would exclude infanticide or euthanasia or assisted suicide. Those things would be outright condemned by the law. Do not murder. That is absolutely what God has in view when he gives this command. And so to point out that it even included unintentional death, though there were different laws given for that. In fact, if I had another 35 minutes, we'd go study Numbers 35. It's a great chapter to look at because it describes all the different scenarios by which if a human being died, which deserved the death penalty and which did not. Under what circumstances should they die? And under these circumstances, no, that's accidental. And so there should not be human life taken. It was still a sin, still a violation of the commandment, but based on different scenarios, it would depend upon what the outcome would be. Our human court system in America does the same thing. We have the whole murder one, murder two, uh, manslaughter, things like that. That's what God is doing in Numbers 35, is that, that based upon what the actions were would give a different kind of punishment. But to recognize the point that God is getting at is, Life is everything, and it is important before God, and we are not then to take then a human life. I think that in pointing this out, it's very important to talk about then what this law did not include, because the command do not murder 
in our society particularly, often misuses this commandment in a way to justify or excuse certain things that we need to talk about. For example, the command of do not murder does not mean that capital punishment is to be excluded. And sometimes that's an argument that's given against capital punishment. Well, the law said do not murder. Well, listen to what God said uh, one chapter later after giving these very commandments. He says, whoever strikes, Exodus 21, 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Just to observe, God said, do not commit murder and then turned around and said, now here's all the sins that if you commit them, you're supposed to be put to death. The point is not then to say that murder then means there is absolutely no taking of human life, but that capital punishment was allowed by God. If you broke the law, then that was supposed to have a punishment to it. In fact, we talked about that this morning where here we read, your eye shall not spare. You are supposed to do something about it. The punishment is supposed to be given. And that's not an Old Testament idea. That's a New Testament idea as well. Romans 13 and verse 4. In talking about the governing authorities, the Apostle Paul writes, If you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so God in the New Testament said, that's exactly what the government is there for, is if you do wrong, you should expect the sword. And swords are not hugs, that's death, that's capital punishment. That's why he uses the very imagery of the sword. And again, God was very clear that we would not circumvent that. Again, after talking about do not murder. Here's Numbers 35, verse 31. Moreover, you shall shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. He shall be put to death. There is no, well, let's put him in jail and maybe he'll rehabilitate. In fact, consider God didn't have a prison system. You know, he didn't have the traveling jail that went all throughout the the wilderness. Uh, That's not the way God operated with things. If you broke certain commandments, that was it. And that's what God is saying here. And don't accept a ransom. Nobody's going to come in and save the day and make a payment to be able to rescue him. Don't accept it. He should surely die. And so God was very clear about that in regards to capital punishment. That we should not look at God's commands of do not murder and think, well, that excludes then uh, the capital punishment issued by a government that is absolutely not part uh, of what God is talking about that that authority has been given to governments another thing that 
is often brought up is, well, what about war? And again, there is a distinction that needs to be made in regards to that. Because here is God giving the commandment, do not murder. And then directly tells the Israelites to go kill all these various nations, like the Amalekites and those that were in the Canaanites and all these nations that they go up against. And some have a difficulty with that and will say, well, that just seems to be irreconcilable. How can God tell the Israelites to go do that when here he tells them do not murder? And God explains himself in the scriptures if we choose to hear it. This primary argument for why he tells Israel to go into battle and conquer these nations and to kill these people because it was God executing justice on the wicked. And he often said that Genesis 15, 16, Leviticus 18, 24. I'm telling you to go to these nations so that you will destroy them because it is a judgment against them. And that's why God was doing that. But even more so to go even further with that. I hope my voice makes it. My apologies. When we say the book of Genesis, we saw Abraham do something in Genesis chapter 14. You might remember here we have Lot and he is living in Sodom along with his family. And you have a bunch of kings all get together, kind of this whole alliance that happens. And they go to war against the cities of the plains. They capture Lot, they capture possessions, they take all kinds of property and take them all the way back. Do you remember what Abraham does? Abraham gets his group together and he goes and battles against those who had taken Lot and attacked those cities. And he goes and rescues Lot and takes all those possessions back. And we know that that was acceptable because if you remember what happens, he gives a tenth of the proceeds to God as a tithe as God blesses him through Melchizedek for what has just occurred. And so here we see yet another picture then of in both of these principles that the command to not murder did not mean to not protect the innocent. And that's what's being expressed here. The innocent are absolutely to be protected. And so here's what Abraham is doing. You wrongfully killed these people and captured these people. So Abraham does something about it. And he goes to battle with them. Here's God saying these people are wicked. Judgment needs to fall upon them. And so he uses Israel as his instrument. By the way, if you ever have somebody have a problem with that, remind them. God used a bunch of nations to do the same thing to Israel when they were wicked. That God was not partial in those judgments. Whatever nation was wicked, even his own people, he would use another nation to come in and do the exact same thing and utterly would wipe out like the northern nation of Israel. There's nothing left of them as the Assyrians come in and wipe them out. God was very equal with that. Wickedness deserves judgment. Wickedness deserves death. And that is the principle he is laying out in the Ten Commandments. And the concept of do not murder them does not circumvent that. To go a little bit further, Exodus makes it very clear. Chapter 20, he says, do not murder. But listen to the scenario in Exodus 22. In verse 2, he says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so he dies... There shall be no blood guilt for him. So here then is a picture then again of protecting others, protecting the innocent, self-defense being justifiable. Somebody breaks into the house and that person dies. God goes, no foul, not a problem. 
He shouldn't have been in your house is what God basically lays out right there. And so, again, I want us to get a sense of that, of when God is saying murder, he's not talking about all death, that there are circumstances by which God says those things were justified. It is the unjustifiable death of human beings that God is talking about when he gives this law. I think it's also important to make this note. This Hebrew word for murder that we're looking at here is never used in regards to animals. And I think that's an important point to make in our society today, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But we need to recognize the scriptures make it clear humans are allowed to eat animals and they're commanded to sacrifice animals. They're never allowed to eat other humans or sacrifice other humans. There's a distinction that is made between humans and animals, and God is always making the point that human life is far higher than animal life because humans are made in the image of God. The reason why we have to tell people that is, you might remember, was about a month or so ago, we had a, what was it, a toddler decide to make his way into a gorilla exhibit, and quickly acting, the zookeepers had to kill the gorilla to save the child. And there was outrage. And I'm rubbing my head at that going, I'm sorry, human life way higher than animal life. You're going to say we should have taken a chance about human life? Absolutely not. Human life always trumps animal life every time in the eyes of God. We are falling apart in our society when we elevate humans to an equal status, uh, animals to an equal status with humans, or even sometimes it seems a higher status than of humans. That's not what God said. Murder applied to human beings. Animals are always lesser, and it's important to keep that in mind as, as we read this. Sometimes people take murder and say, we shouldn't kill animals. God directly gave that to Israel and said, that is what you're supposed to do, not only to live, to eat, but also in sacrifice to him. So these are the concepts of do not murder, is that we do not take a life, but understanding that God did give situations and talking about those who break the law, they were still to be put to death. And that is what God had intended as he gives this law. In verse 14, we come to the seventh commandment. <clears throat> Here you notice he says, you shall not commit adultery. We could use a whole lesson on this. I recently just did that, and so that's why I'm not going to spend a lot of time here on this. But there's one thing I really do want to observe with this command, is listen to what God said in Deuteronomy about this. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. And I want us to observe that while God's law was, if you commit adultery, that carried the death penalty, that that was not unusual in ancient Near Eastern societies at all. That was a common punishment that was given for adultery. And so God's not unusual in this one. I'm 
growing weary of the revisions of history that suggest that that was totally acceptable in ancient Near Eastern worlds. Adultery was not. Promiscuity, perhaps, but not adultery. That did carry the death penalty. There's all kinds of law codes that we have historically that reveal that. And what God is saying is that the marriage is supposed to be respected. And so do not commit adultery and to put it on the same plane to say, if you commit adultery, the result was supposed to be death. It shows that we do have quite a gracious God who will take us back for sins like these. But to recognize what an abomination adultery is before God is not acceptable to him. And that's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And to recognize the weight of that, when you hear what he said was the punishment in the Old Testament, that this was quite serious before God, that to violate that marriage covenant was a serious offense before God, that God in the Old Testament said was deserving of death. The eighth command, he says in verse 15, do not steal. And that included people. In fact, we just read that in a minute ago in our reading that you weren't supposed to take goods. You were not supposed to take people. Things that we see historically that have happened in the past where people were stolen and then sold. That is a violation of the very commandments of God. And that was not to happen. And it would also include cheating other people. One of the things that was very common in the ancient Near Eastern marketplaces was trying to swindle people. You might have heard of the weighing of the scales and trying to tip them in a certain way so that you wouldn't have to sell as much and putting them in the balance. And so God is condemning that. You are cheating people. You are stealing from them what is theirs. And I hope that we would think about the problem of stealing truly is a heart problem because it reveals that we have a lack of contentment. First Timothy chapter six and verse six, godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing from the world that this should be our perspective about our possessions. We came in with zero and you're not going to get any of it with you. You Always talk about there's never a U-Haul on the back of the hearse. You know, we're just going to pile all his toys into the grave. He's going to get to play with them in heaven. You didn't have it when you started and you're not going to keep it when you finish. And so to have contentment and enjoy the things that you have and not to steal those things from other people. Friends, that's really important today as well. It doesn't matter if somebody has more and you have less. That is not a justification to steal. It doesn't matter if they have a million times more than you and you are barely scraping by with not even two nickels to your name. There is no justification for stealing. We don't take from other people. And that is the law that was being given here. We have a society now that is trying to ingrain. Well, if you have less, it's okay to take from others. No, that is not God's law. We do not take from them. God had set up a system that those who would do well would share and we would give and we would help. That is the Christian community that we see that we've even been studying in the Sermon on the Mount. But there is no justification for taking, no justification for stealing. This is a violation of this eighth commandment. The ninth commandment in verse 16 
your translation probably say, do not bear false witness. And probably a little bit easier to be, this would be the giving of false testimony. It prohibits untruthfulness and dishonesty of any kind. But in particular, it's probably zeroing in on something we would call in our language perjury. You're not supposed to give a false witness. And so, therefore, any false accusations or slander, giving of a false testimony, all of these things are included in this prohibition in this command. Think about when Jesus is on trial, this is actually how they get him to his death is that they are able to gather false witnesses. And they don't agree, but they finally are able to conjure up these witnesses to claim things that are false in this trial that was really not much of a true just trial in the slightest. The point being what we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, and I hope you're seeing the contact of the Sermon on the Mount. God's people are to be truthful and honest no matter what. That they speak the truth. They are not dishonest. They will tell the truth in all things. We studied that when we saw about the oath-taking that Jesus talks about. We don't need to swear by things. We are going to tell the truth no matter what. And we would only take an oath because the person, like in a court system, is trying to put us under this commitment that you are going to do because I don't know your character. Oh yeah, we'll tell the truth whether I'm under oath or not under oath. It's going to come out the same way. That's the point that, that the Lord is getting here in this command. The 10th command. This one's very much encompassing. And I remember growing up as a kid and talking about covetousness. I just didn't really understand that word. Like, what is covetousness? But that word for covet is a really broad word. And it just simply describes desire and lust. And so the implication is of an evil desire or an evil lust, this desire of possessions or of, uh, of people. And so we are getting a picture here that God doesn't merely just care about all your outward acts, but he also cares about the heart. He cares about the things you desire, which now you can get the sense of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount going, I'm not telling you anything new here. It's always been a matter of the heart. It's always supposed to be inside out that these actions are supposed to happen. It's not acceptable to God to say, well, I can just um, desire all these evil things and, and have my mind run to all kinds of wickedness as long as I don't do them. The 10th commandment prohibited that. And you see the expansiveness of that in verse 17. You don't covet slash desire lust your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That's theirs. That's not yours. And you're not supposed to be chasing after those things. And so the point is that we would not desire everything that everybody else has, but that you would be enjoying what you do have. Consider why that's important, because coveting really is a declaration before God that says, I'm ungrateful for what I have. I'm ungrateful for what you've given me. I'm ungrateful for my circumstance in life. I'm ungrateful for the blessings that you've given me. And I think somebody else is doing better. I'd rather be them. And obviously God's not pleased. You'd really appreciate if your child came up to you and said, well, I really wish my my parents were those parents over there. You'd go, oh, okay. (laughs) Let me see what it's like to show you what it's like to live on the sidewalk. And you might become a little bit more appreciative of the house you're in and the food you're supplied and the goods that you have and the blessings that come from the family. And for us to covet and not have contentment with the things that we have is the same insult before our God. Now, 
It's easy to come to the end of that and go, okay, end of verse 17 period, end of story. But that then misses, I think, the massive thrust of what the Ten Commandments are about. Watch what happens after this. (coughs) Verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled (coughs) and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is an interesting ending. Because... Here you have the declaration of the Ten Commandments. Remember, God is speaking these things. The mountain is shaking. It is smoking. It is the, remember the voices, it sounds like trumpets getting louder and louder as God speaks each of these commandments. And I want you to recognize that when we get to the end of the Ten Commandments, the people don't go, all right, those ten sound good, let's go. It's not a response of, hey, no problem. We we can do that. Let's go. High fives all around. We'll keep those laws. The response of the people is absolute dread and fear. And notice that they recognize we need a mediator. We don't want God to tell us all these things anymore. We are very afraid. Moses, you go between us and God. You go to him and you tell us what he says. You hear from him what he says and you tell it to us and we will do all that said. And that was the intention of God's law. In fact, you'll notice in verse 20 what Moses says about that, where he says, basically, that fear is good. He says in verse 20, do not fear for God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. It's almost like he says, don't be terrified, but this is intended that you will have awe and fear and respect of God that you will keep his commandments. You are to stand before this holy God and go, wow, this is something to stand before our God that we are to obey him. And notice how it ends. There were the people are not going to come near to God. Moses will go near to God, and they will stand afar off. And they're recognizing the holiness of God. They're not just like, hey, let's just run up the mountain. That was great. Let's see that again. Do that one more time, God. They are afraid, and they recognize their place before God. It troubled me because I knew I already had a long sermon. And I would like to do at least three or four different applications that I can't do. (laughs) But I would like to at least give you some ideas of those applications that I'm not going to do so that you can go do that on your own. And then I'll give you the application that I did decide to do. And it was very hard for me. I kept changing my mind. And I finally like, okay, I don't don't know what to do. One, seed for you, not the application for tonight, but for you to go look and think about We've talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. This was the very intention of the law. The law was intended to cause people to recognize their need 
for the mercy of God. That was the purpose of God's law. Luke 10 is a great place there in verse 25. Here's the lawyer. He comes up to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what does the law say? And the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. What a wonderful summary of the Ten Commandments. The first four. Love the Lord your God. No idols. Follow Him. No, Don't turn to anything else. That you would honor His name. Honor His day. All of those things. And then the final six. That you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer then with this great narrative it says about him. And trying to justify himself. <laughs> that's what the law is supposed to do. The law is to cause what happened in these people that you step back and go, oh no, I am a failure when I stand before the law of God and I stand before His presence and I am in dire need of His mercy. You can go run with that. I can go do 30 more minutes on that. No time. Let's talk about what we will talk about then. Go over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, you will notice as we read these first few verses that the writer is recounting the scene that we have just studied over these past few weeks. You'll notice it there in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and the tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. That's the very scene we've just studied. That's exactly what we're looking at right now. God has come to the mountain. They have met God is how chapter 19 revealed what was about to happen. They are coming to meet God. God has spoken the Ten Commandments and they are in dread. They are in fear. They are saying no more messages from God and they cannot handle what has happened. Now watch what the writer of Hebrews does with that. Verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits who of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay, you're not in that situation that you are at Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion. Now, it's easy to read that and go, okay, it was really scary before God before, but thankfully we haven't come to Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion. Wipe the sweat off your brow. High fives all around. It's all okay. We're all good. Under new covenant, so glad we don't live under the old. That's not the point the writer of the Hebrews makes. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? What's the point the writer makes? 
The point is not, boy, they were scared. And Moses comes and says, now don't be terrified, but this was to keep you from sinning. But thankfully, we've come to Zion, so it's okay. No, the point is, if that was true about Sinai, how much more for us before Zion? That we should not be sinning and what we have in Christ in the mountain that we have come to is to also keep us from sinning. Not to be like, hey, grace of God, we're all right. Let's go do whatever we want. Thank you. We're under Jesus and not under that old law. That's not the point. The point is quite the opposite. You haven't come to Sinai. You have come to Zion. And he makes the point then. So then how much less will we escape if we reject what's being told to us from heaven, from our Lord Jesus Christ? He is warning us of the same fate if we choose to live a life of sin. That we would never become before Christ and say, well, it's better under a new covenant. God was harsh and and, and boy, he was rough and tumble back there. But he really eased up and, you know, Jesus kind of calmed him down. And so it's all good now under the new covenant it's not the idea that through jesus it's supposed to give us a greater awareness of sin a greater awareness of our need for the mercy of god and to help keep us from sinning as well because we see what our god has done for us notice how he moves forward in that verse 26 at that time his voice shook the earth but now he has promised yet once more i will shake not only the earth but also the heavens this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is things that have been made in order the things that cannot be shaken may remain we're going to the removal of the old system the, the destruction of the temple and the end of that Jewish whole age that was going to be set aside. And then verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. If He is not taking the imagery of Sinai and dumping it right here, we have missed what He's doing. You've come to Zion, and so be grateful that you are in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. But then when you approach, you better approach with reverence and awe because God is a consuming fire. It is not we just get to approach God and be willy-nilly and hey, it's okay. There is supposed to be the same level of awe and fear and respect that we see these people having at Sinai as we come before God in Zion. In fact, if I can bring it all round about, here he is referring to Sinai and referring to the things that belong to it. And notice the similarities then of the things that were contained in the law of Moses and in those Ten Commandments now being reiterated in chapter 13. I don't have time. Here's another rabbit trail for you. But often I'll read chapter 13 and I'll be like, there's all these like quick hit commandments. And it just kind of feels... But listen to them and notice how they seem very much like the law of Moses. Hebrews 13.1 then opens. You get that 13 out of the way. Very next line. Let brotherly love continue. The sum of the commandments were to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So let love for one another continue. A couple verses later. Let marriage be held in honor by all. Do not commit adultery. Keep your life free from the love of money is the next verse. Do not covet. 
these laws that are being given are simply the fulfillment of what this law that God was giving. You have come to Zion. You've come to a better covenant. You've come to the blood of Christ. And you've enjoyed these things. Now do what God has called you to do. That we do not come to Zion and say, victory, we have nothing to do. But we are under even a greater requirement that we will stand before our God with awe and reverence and fear. Desiring to obey Him. Because we see if this is what God did to those in the past who disobeyed. We are under a greater condemnation because we have such a greater high priest and a greater system and a greater sacrifice and greater glories have been given to us that we enjoy a greater knowledge and understanding of all that we have in Christ. It's why the writer of Hebrews would bring that as a finale to his book because the whole thing has been about it's so much better under Christ and his system. And so if you live in that better system and under that better covenant with a better sacrifice and a better tabernacle and a better mediator, then you need to live that way. You need to live in a way that reveals your awe and your reverence for your Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to Him with all your heart. Pull yourself books out.